Today I'm going to speak about human security and international law. Human security is a relatively new articulation of the development in our intellectual perception of the public order of the international community in which the individual and not the state is the growing center of concern for the issue of security. The concept was first launched into the world by the 1994 Human Development Report of the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, in which principles of economic development and traditional security studies were presented as an intertwined concept. The report described human security as having two main aspects, namely safety from chronic threats such as hunger and repression on the one hand, and protection from sudden disruptions in patterns of everyday life on the other hand. It stated as follows, and I quote, in the final analysis, human security is a child who did not die, a disease that did not spread, a job that was not cut, an ethnic tension that did not explode in violence, a dissident who was not silenced, Human security is not a concern with weapons. It is a concern with human life and dignity. Various definitions of human security have since emerged, which can be loosely grouped into two schools. The narrow approach focuses on freedom from violence and the prevention of armed conflict as its main objective, whereas the broader approach encompasses within its conceptual scope threats associated with underdevelopment. Although there are clear differences in policy priorities between the two approaches, they share a common focus on the substantive content of the concept, in the sense that both are concerned with the issue of human individuals who are to be protected by whomever and against whatever threat May, be, may exist. The purpose of the present discourse is to analyze this concept of human security to examine how this concept can be related to the international legal order as it exists now, and to assess its legal significance as a, usual, as a useful conceptual tool for contributing to the development of the international legal order in this period of major transformation of the international system of governance. The discourse of human security often neglects to identify the legitimate place of the concept within the existing international legal order, a linkage which is essential to the legitimization of human security in the context of the international public order. In fact, International law has often been presented in the discourse of the subject as an obstacle to the realization of human security or as a distinct discipline with different goals and motivations. In particular, the normative principle of state sovereignty is often considered a barrier to the full implementation of human security. However, by examining the process of development in recent years of international law, it becomes apparent that the goals of international law are not so distinct from those of human security. 
It will be found that the principles underlying human security have been latent in international law, which is evolving with increasing dynamism to encompass many of the basic principles of human security. Human security is often distinguished from traditional security doctrines on the basis that it makes individuals the central concern of security policy. However, the basic concept constituting the center of human security should not be understood as new or recently created, but rather as a continuing development of existing principles inherent in the concept of security. As with the concept of human security, the traditional understanding of security also developed from the concern for the protection of the individual. New developments in the realities of international relations in recent years have come to create the need for this idea of protection of human beings to be reconceptualized. In this respect, international law itself has been going through a major shift towards the recognition of the individual, both as actor and as object of protection. The modern state performs a dual function. Its main functions are to ensure the protection of its nationals, that is to say their personal safety, and to assure their well-being, that is to say their prosperity. The international system created under the Peace of Westphalia uh, of 1648 consolidated the sovereign and independent state as the indivisible and sole unit in the conduct of external relations of nations. At the same time, the Hobbesian model of the state allocated each state exclusive and supreme authority within its borders. Developed in the context of the civil wars in, in England, Hobbes's Leviathan envisaged a sovereign authority to whom all individuals in that society ceded their natural rights in exchange for the protection in the midst of civil conflict, the Belm Omnium Contra Omnes, or the war of all against all. The power of the state was thus premised on the social contract between the sovereign and its subjects, guaranteeing their peaceful existence. The idea of protection of the individual, therefore, lies at the core of the Hobbesian state model. As the duty of the sovereign authority was to ensure peace for its citizens, this protective function of the state became condensed into the essential elements of state sovereignty. The state machinery that developed for ensuring the safety of members of society was that of national security, synonymous with national defense. With sovereignty as a key value, all threats were perceived to be as coming from the outside, and the safety of the people was thus best secured by defending them against external threats. The most significant function of the state came to be identified with this exclusive power of the state to exercise force. Thus, 
Max Weber regarded the successful maintenance of the claim to the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence by a state as one of the conditions for the existence of the state. Even today, the United Nations Charter recognizes the exclusive authority of the state within its borders in the provisions of Article, 7 paragraphs, uh, Article 2, Paragraph 7, which enshrines the principle of non-interference in the domestic affairs of sovereign states. However, in the years following the establishment of the United Nations, it has become clear that security could not be guaranteed simply by means of an effective national defense policy. Strong difference of the territory of a state does not necessarily ensure that citizens are secure, as has become clear in the fate of the former Soviet Union and some African countries in recent history. Individuals facing civil war, famine, and disease within sovereign borders remained unprotected outside of the traditional concept of security. It was primarily in the 1980s and 1990s that the limitations of the traditional framework of national security began to be questioned. The move towards a different approach to security came to be advanced by the work of several international commissions, beginning with the Palme Commission report of 1982. The Palme Commission posited that security should be understood from a global perspective and not just from the viewpoint of nation states. This was followed by the Brundtland Commission report on development and the environment, which introduced the concept of sustainable development, that is to say, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. The end of the Cold War further contributed to the departure from a state security model based solely on protection of the nationals from external threats. The demise of a world divided by the rivalry between two camps in confrontation with each other has ushered in a new era in which exogenous forces that used to work for keeping nations in unity have disappeared, and in their stead, indigenous forces that tend to disrupt the social fabric have been unleashed. As a result, the solid basis for fostering the body politic of a nation in cohesion and for consolidating the system of governance in society was not allowed to develop. Furthermore, the tide of globalization has promoted transnational movements which tend to undermine the ability of the state to maintain a cohesive unit within its borders. Thus, in many of the newly created nation states, the social solidarity to be built on the basis of the development in the common consciousness of belongingness to a nation either did not develop 
or came to collapse, thus creating a situation of failing or failed states. Without external support, those failing states were unable to fully realize the protective function for their nationals afflicted with the inability to exert a monopoly of power over their whole territory. Faced with this new situation, the collection of new ideas about security generated by international commissions and the increasing number of practical examples of states failing to provide for the safety of their citizens were gathered together and elaborated upon in the 1994 Human Development Report of the UNDP. This formed the starting point for a new academic debate on the definition of security. Gradually, a new approach to the function of security has come to emerge, cons constituting a deepening and broadening of the traditional security function and its reconceptualization. Broadening because it has to take into account a greater range of new types of threats, including food insecurity, deterioration in public health conditions, and environmental degradation alongside the more conventional threats of armed violence, but arising out of internal disorder. Deepening because it has to take into account the hetero heterogeneous mix of actors in the provision of security. This has led to a paradigm shift in security from one which is state-centered to one which is people-centered. This new paradigm shift in security is exemplified by the adoption of the UN General Assembly of Resolution 66-290 in 2012. In that resolution, the General Assembly agreed that, and I quote, human security is an approach to assist member states in identifying and addressing widespread and cross-cutting challenges to the survival, livelihood, and dignity of their people, end of quotation. The resolution outlined a common understanding on the notion of human security, which included inter alia, the right of people to live in freedom and dignity, free from poverty and despair, with an equal opportunity to enjoy all their rights and fully develop their human potential. The resolution added that, and I quote, human security calls for people-centered, comprehensive, context-specific, and prevention-oriented responses that strengthen the protection and empowerment of all people and all communities, end of quotation. In addition, the resolution noted that, and I quote again, governments retain the primary role and responsibility for ensuring the survival, livelihood, and dignity of their citizens. The role of the international community is to complement and provide the necessary support to governments upon their request 
so as to strengthen their capacity to respond to the current and emerging threats, end of quotation. The concept of human security, which has thus emerged, tries to respond to the inadequacies of traditional models of statehood in order to make states fulfill their functions properly in a globalized world. Though the objective of the state in securing the safety of its nationals from external threats remains, the protective function has evolved to take into account new threats and challenges. Globalization has been the main catalyst for the evolution in functions of the states in the Westphalian international system and, in turn, as its corollary, has had the effect of prompting the development of the humanization of international law. It has not only rendered the traditional security concept inadequate within the domestic context of a state, but it has had an impact upon the normative framework of international law as the linchpin of international legal order by recognizing an overarching society in which the international community interest is larger than the state interests, and by recognizing the individual as an ultimate subject of this community, rather than the state as its formal subject. This new uh, phenomenon of globalization as, as social reality has led to an increasing tension with the existing institutional framework for the management of the international system built on the principle of national partition of competence in the Westphalian legal order. In this new situation, the requirement of some minimum public order of international society is recognized. This change in the nature of international society demands that the universal value of the primacy of human beings be put at the center. There is a growing awareness that the legal order based on sovereign states should take into account the fact that the ultimate beneficiary of legal norms is the individual human being. In the social contract between individuals and the state, it is now expected that the state should serve all the needs of the society it rules, as the assurance of sovereignty is no longer sufficient justification for absolute authority. This evolution in international law brings about a paradigm shift parallel with a paradigm shift in the concept of security should constitute the organic link between the concept of human security and international law. Now I talk about the different dimensions of human security. The expansion of the scope of the security function to include a response to these challenges of globalization is evident across diverse fields of human activity as illustrated in the following. A, the protection of refugees and internally displaced persons in armed conflict, that is, the security from fear. Beginning in the late 1980s, traditional security scholars started to examine 
the link between refugee movements and the security. An increase in the occurrence of civil wars has meant that individuals find themselves more and more unwittingly situated in the theater of conflict. It is clear that the displacement of people is both a consequence and a cause of insecurity. While the movement of people is often a consequence of insecurity, such as the result of war, enormous economic insecurity, human rights violations, etc., it can also be a cause of insecurity in the receiving regions and within the state itself. When the human security of individuals and communities is denied, the security of states is also threatened. Failing to address the root causes of migratory flows can result in a self-renewing cycle of insecurity in vulnerable regions. Moreover, refugee flows into neighboring states can constitute a threat to international peace and security. The effect of refugee flows on international peace and security has also been noted by the Security Council in resolutions concerning Iraq, the Balkans, and Haiti, amongst others. For example, Security Council Resolution 918 of 1994, establishing safe havens in Rwanda, expresses, and I quote, deep concern at the massive exodus of refugees to neighboring countries, end of quotation. The recent situation in Sudan and neighboring Chad provides another example on the destabilizing influence of cross-border refugee flows. In those states where resources are already scarce, a flow of refugees can increase food insecurity and competition for demands on water, shelter, and land. The effect of a mass movement of people within the community can produce a similar strain on resources and resulting insecurity. In the middle of 2013, the number of people of concern to the UNHCR was reported as 38.7 million, including, amongst others, 11.1 million refugees and 20.8 million internally displaced persons protected or assisted by the UNHCR. This figure was a record and constituted an increase of more than 12 million since 2007. The principal countries of origin of those affected and of concern to the UNHCR were Syria, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Colombia. The growing numbers of refugees and IDPs internally displaced persons, suggest that conflict prevention strategies are not currently integrating the perspective of the individuals to a sufficient degree, and that further development of a human security approach is needed in this field. 
The importance of protecting displaced people in the context of armed conflict was under, underlined by the 2008 International Court of Justice order on interim measures of protection in Georgia against Russia, Russian Federation case concerning the application of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Recognizing the imminent risk to the rights at issue, the court noted that, and I quote, while the problems of refugees and internally displaced persons in this region are currently being addressed, they have not yet been resolved in their entirety, end of quotation. Reminding the parties of their duty to comply with their obligations under third, the court ordered that both parties should, and I quote, do all in their power whenever and wherever possible to ensure without distinction as to national or ethnic origin, one, security of persons, two, the right of persons to freedom of movement and residence within the border of the state, and three, the protection of property of displaced persons and refugees, end of quotation. Likewise, the need to protect those displaced by armed conflict was reaffirmed by the, by the court in its order indicating provisional measures in the recent case between Cambodia and Thailand concerning a request for interpretation of an earlier judgment regarding sovereignty over the area surrounding the Temple of Prayer Vihar. In its order, the court noted that various armed incidents occurring between Cambodia and Thailand in the area of the temple since 15 July 2008 had led to, and I quote, the displacement of local inhabitants, end of quotation and ordered provisional measures to preserve the plausible rights of the parties pending the final resolution of the dispute between the parties on the merits. As well as measures taken to address the root causes of refugee movements, the issue of refugees and internally displaced persons is also central to effective post-conflict peace building. In many regions of the world, displaced populations have been the critical element in continuing conflict and instability, with refugee camps used as launching pads for further conflict. Successful reintegration of returned refugees and internally displaced persons into their communities of origin is an essential component of peace-building policies. All these examples illustrate that the issue of human security is addressed by the international community in the form of resolutions by the Security Council or decisions of the International Court of Justice as issues falling within the normative framework of the international legal order to be assured in accordance with the relevant and applicable rules of general international law, conventional rules of international law, and provisions of relevant Security Council resolutions.
Now, second, I'm going to speak about the development security from want, another field in which the effects of globalization on the functions of the state in relation to the protection of the welfare of individuals can be seen is that of development. Throughout the Cold War, the issue of development used to be styled as the North-South problem. It seems undeniable that the denomination of the issue of development in this way as the North-South problem thus juxtaposed with the East-West confrontation symbolize that the issue was primarily a political economic problem. This classification of the issue of development succeeded in creating a somewhat distorted framework for dealing with the issue of development as a normative issue. Aligning colonialism with imperialism and capitalism, it was argued that there was a natural basis for the formation of an alliance between the East, which was fighting against the West, and the South, which was struggling against the North, both of which had a shared common enemy in capitalism, that is the West, alias the North. The existence of extreme poverty that came to prevail in these former colonies after the colonial powers had left offered a fertile ground for political exploitation by the revolutionary forces in these countries. Subsequent history has unfortunately shown that this ideological alliance resulted in the devastation of the economic wealth of many nations and in the, in the pre prevalence of political, political corruption in many parts of the developing world, with little benefit for the people involved. As stated earlier, the collapse of the Cold War order has unleashed certain forces which have their origin very often in religious, ethnic, racial, and other social tensions, as well as in inequality, political and social alienation, extreme poverty, and other grievances in society. These forces have given rise to num uh, numerous civil wars and armed conflicts within nation states in many parts of the world. Without the support of exogenous forces, traditional models of development were quickly undermined and discarded. It became clear that the problem of development could no longer remain in the conventional realm of economic development as measured by such criteria as the growth in income per capita or the wealth of a nation in terms of the size of its gross national product. It would seem the day has now come when development as defined primarily in terms of the issue of freedom from want has to be regarded as being inseparably linked with the issue of freedom from fear. The 2013 Human Development Report from the UN Development Program clearly emphasizes this linkage between freedom from fear and freedom from want, stating that, and I quote, in every society, 
human security is undermined by a variety of threats, including hunger, disease, crime, unemployment, human rights violations, and environmental challenges. The intensity of these threats differs across the world, but human security remains a universal quest for freedom from want and fear." End of quotation. The report also emphasized that human security concerns can differ by country, region, or even person on the broad spectrum comprising a range of threats to the freedom from want and freedom from fear. Thus, while the concept of human security is flexible enough to adjust to varying circumstances facing different individuals, the freedom from want remains a basic aspect of human security. What lies at the center of this core development is the concept of development as freedom and the process towards development as a process of human dignity. Although it is true that this may not amount as such to the recognition of development as a human right, it reflects the concept that every human being is entitled to a living standard worthy of human dignity, as I, an idea expressed in the preambular paragraph 5 and Article 22 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. So I now come to the issue of public health, which is the security from disease. As a classical example of a threat without borders, health issues, especially the spread of infectious diseases, are increasingly addressed within the security framework. The 1994 Human Development Report included health as one of the seven categories of human security. And since that time, the securitization of health issues has been vigorously debated. The irrelevance of sovereign borders and the importance of international cooperation are strikingly clear when dealing with health security. Not all, not all health issues have a link to human security. The report of the Commission on Human Security suggests that, and I quote, three health challenges stand out as closely linked to human security namely global infectious diseases, poverty-related threats, and violence and crisis, end of quotation. Adding that, and I quote again, poverty-related health threats are perhaps the greatest burden of human security. Most preventable infectious diseases, nutritional deprivation, and uh, Maternity-related risks, risks are concentrated among the world's poor. Poverty and disease set up a vicious spiral with negative economic and human consequences." End of quotation. A human <coughs> security approach to infectious disease has been adopted by several, several national governments as well as the United Nations. 
One such example is Security Council Resolution 1308, adopted on the 17th July 2000, in which the United Nations Security Council declared that, and I quote, the HIV-AIDS pandemic, if unchecked, may pose a risk to stability and security, end of quotation. One can find a legal echo of this right to enjoy health in Article 12 of the Inter International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights of 1966, which provides as follows, and I quote, the state's parties to the present covenant recognize the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, end of quotation. While this provision belongs to what is referred to in the legal jargon as program that, or a non-binding legal principle, that is to say, the prescription that states the end objective of the law, which does not create concrete rights that individuals can invoke as a basis for a plan to change the existing situation, its philosophical significance should not be ignored. Fourth, I come to the issue of good governance, which is the security from oppression. The idea of human dignity is central to the concept of human security. It is clear that the legal framework of human rights and human security are mutually supportive, based on a common foundation. The framework of human rights can be understood as a means to achieve the border, the, as a means to achieve the broader goal of human dignity inherent in the concept of human security, and to guarantee the security of individuals from oppression. When the personal human rights of individuals are not respected, their, choice, their choices for free actions are restrained, and they are no longer able to live their lives in a manner of their own choosing. In this sense, oppressive regimes may suffocate the freedom of groups of people who have their own views to be heard, which in turn could also give rise to the militant behavior of minority struggles, endangering the security of all. For human security to be realized, good governance thus is an essential prerequisite for a viable human rights strategy to develop. An author describes this interlinkage in the following words, and I quote, it is important to be clear about the strategic importance of respect for human rights in the process of global governance. In the first place, conflicts cannot be prevented or peace maintained in a world of wanton violations of human rights. In the second place, respect for human rights is a requirement for efficiency and effectiveness in governance. Put simply, Development is illusory without freedom. Now I come to the next uh, item, which is the human security in the context of the international legal order. 
The most visible impact of the paradigm shift in the concept of security on the international legal order is the development of the concept of sovereignty as a responsibility. First formulated by Francis Deng and, and Roberta Cohen, and then elaborated by the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty in 2001, this recalibration of the meaning of sovereignty emphasizes that states remain in the best position to provide for their citizens and that they are now obligated to take into account not only external threats but also to assure security from poverty, hunger, disease, and oppression for their nationals. Where the state fails in their responsibility through either incapacity or ill will, a secondary responsibility to, to protect must fall on the wider international community as part of its common responsibility to safeguard the public policy of the community. The concept of state sovereignty as encompassing a responsibility to protect those within state boundaries was endorsed by the General Assembly and incorporated in the outcome document of the World Summit of 2005. It is becoming increasingly clear that states can no longer claim the legitimacy of action taken at the national level by invoking the cloak of absolute sovereignty and exclusive jurisdiction in order to escape accountability for failing to protect the, <coughs> the fundamental rights of their own nationals as individuals. According to the accepted normative conscience of the international community of today, it is primarily the states who are under the responsibility to protect their own nationals from oppression and the denial of justice both within and outside of their own territory. Nevertheless, if the state in question should fail in carrying out this primary responsibility through either being unable or unwilling to carry it out, then the responsibility to protect should fall upon the shoulders of the international community. It is for this reason that the concept of sovereignty as a responsibility places emphasis on capacity building, early warning, prevention, and collaboration of the international community. The responsibility of the international community to intervene if necessary through military means in humanitarian crises arises only when preventive and protective measures have failed. It can be argued that this concept of sovereignty as responsibility has always been latent in international law as a corollary of the thesis that states exercise sovereignty within the limits of international law. As explained by Alain Perret, and I quote, in other words, sovereignty is not and has never been an unlimited power to do all that is not expressly forbidden by international law. It can only be defined as the very criterion of states by virtue of which 
such an entity possesses the totality of international rights and duties recognized by international law. As long as it has not limited them in particular terms by concluding a treaty, end of quotation. However, the effects of globalization in the sense of the emergence of a global community upholding universal values on the conception of state sovereignty within the international legal order have been gradual. This evolution, in particular, in relation to the principle of non-interference in the domestic affairs of another state, is clearly evident in the evolution shown in the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice. In 1964, in the Southwest Africa case, the court rejected by a majority of eight to seven with the president's casting vote, the claims brought by Ethiopia and Liberia against South Africa on the alleged charge of violation of the mandate by which South Africa was exercising its mandatory power over the territory of Southwest Africa with regard to its residents, human beings as, as inadmissible. The court ruled that the applicant had no legal standing to bring the claim because they had no legal interest in the issue. This judgment of the court, which could be interpreted as upholding the respect of non-interference in the domestic affairs of a state as a fundamental value, was sharply criticized in the international legal community at large. Richard Falk, for example, described the decision of the court as, and I quote, at best a painful reminder that international adjudication is suited only to the settlement of trivial questions of a highly technical nature, and at worst, an endorsement of South Africa's racial policies, end of quotation. Even at the time of the judgment, it was clear that the legal community was sharply divided, as reflected in the eloquent dissenting opinions of several judges, including judges Jessup and Tanaka. In his dissenting opinion, Judge Tanaka stated, and I quote, each member of a human society, whether domestic or international, is interested in the realization of social justice and humanitarian ideas. The state which belongs as a member of an international organization incorporating such ideas must necessarily be interested. The state may become the subject or holder of a legal interest regarding social justice and humanitarian matters, but this interest includes its profound concern with the attitude of other states, particularly member states belonging to the same treaty or organization. In short, each state may possess a legal interest in the observance of the obligations by other states. End of quotation. By 1970, by contrast, the same court specifically recognized the interest of other states in the respect of fundamental values, such as those relating to the, the protection 
as individuals, as obligations owed to the international community as a whole. In the Barcelona Traction case, the court stated in its obita dictum that, and I quote, an essential distinction should be drawn between the obligations of a state towards the international community as a whole and those arising vis-a-vis -vis another state in the field of diplomatic protection. By their very nature, the former are the concern of all states. In view of the importance of the rights involved, all states can be held to have a legal interest in their protection. They are obligations erga omnes. Such obligations derive, for example, in contemporary international law from the outlawing of acts of aggression and of genocide, as also from the principles and rules concerning the basic rights of the human person, including protection from slavery and racial discrimination. End of quotation. The effect of this paradigm shift in the concept of security upon the international legal order is thus conceptually linked to a parallel paradigm shift in international law with regard to the individual. Having stated this, however, the two concepts of human security and the responsibility to protect each possess a distinct scope of application, though both have their respective places within the framework of the contemporary international legal order. In his 2012 report on human security, the Secretary General noted that, and I quote, the notion of human security is distinct from the responsibility to protect and its implementation. While human security is in response to uh, multidimensional insecurities facing people, the responsibility to protect focuses on protecting populations from specific cases of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity." End of quotation. In considering the place of human security in the international legal order, in light of the paradigm shift in security, it is important to take note of another new development in the international legal order, namely the universal acceptance of certain values of the international community, such as justice and human rights. These values have become entrenched into the international rule of law. Parallel with the, uh, the changing role of the state as a root cause of the changes in the international system, there has arisen a strong awareness in the world of the importance of the primacy of human beings as individuals and of the relevance of these individuals to the international system. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan described this shift in meaning of sovereignty as follows, and I quote, state sovereignty in its most basic sense, is being redefined, not least by the forces of globalization and international cooperation. States are now widely understood to be instruments at the service of their peoples, and not vice versa. At the same time, 
individual sovereignty, by which I mean the fundamental freedom of each individual enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations and subsequent international treaties, has been enhanced by a renewed and spreading consciousness of individual rights. When we read the Charter today, we are more than ever conscious that its aim is to protect individual human beings, not to protect those who abuse them. Again, this phenomenon is not entirely new. The focus on individuals as relevant actors in the international system was already in existence at the time of the creation of the United Nations. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 and the Geneva Convention of 1949, for example, demonstrate the recognition of the place of the individual within a system based on interstate relations. Since that time, international human rights law and international humanitarian law have undergone rapid expansion and come to increasing prominence within international law. The dramatic rise in importance of these pillars as part of the international legal system has altered the system into, in two crucial and interrelated aspects both in terms of its contents and in terms of structure as, employing, as embodying international legal obligations. This recognition of the individual within the framework of international law has occurred in two stages. The first stage, involving the conclusion of several major international human rights instruments, such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, saw states undertaking obligations to ensure human rights within their respective jurisdictions. This stage took place within the framework of the traditional Westphalian order as states took a sovereign decision to be accountable for certain activities that take place within their territory in relation to other states. In this sense, the conclusion of human rights instruments and the creation of institutions dedicated to their oversight therefore had a direct effect on the substance of international law, injecting into the international legal order substantive rules relating to human rights based on the principle of justice and the fundamental values that transcend the national boundaries of states. The second stage has consisted of the process in which what was achieved in the first stage brought the individual to the center stage of the international legal system as a subject of law with internationally cognizable rights. As a result, the legal scope of obligations of states relating to individuals has now been stretched from its narrower, more formalistic context of the state-to-state -state relationship of rights and obligations into the creation of direct rights for individuals. In this setting, human rights instruments have come to be in interpreted as prescribing 
international norms to guarantee an international standard of justice applicable to individuals that is substantive in character. These developments place further legal constraints on the conduct of sovereign states within the international community, thus demonstrating the role of international law as agents for realizing human security rather than as agent for constituting a barrier to the protection of human security. An example of this development can be seen in the recent statement of the Human Rights Committee commenting on the content of the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights and on human rights treaties in general, and I quote, such treaties and the covenant specifically are not a wave of interstate exchanges of mutual obligations. They concern the endowment of individuals with rights. The principle of interstate reciprocity has no place, save perhaps in the limited context of reservations to declaration on the committee's competence under Article 11. End of quotation. It is noteworthy in this respect that the International Court of Justice also recognized this evolution in its judgment in the Lagrange case in the context of the interpretation of certain provisions of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, which is par excellence an international treaty possessing the reciprocal rights and obligations of states inter se. And in this case, a question arose as to whether certain rights prescribed in the Convention pertaining to individuals were indeed rights of those individuals or rights belonging to states in their interstate relationship. Against the argument advanced by one of the parties that rights of consular notification and access under the Vienna Convention are rights of states, not of individuals, the court held as follows, and I quote, the court notes that Article 36, Paragraph 1b spells out the obligations the receiving state has towards the detained person and the sending state. It provides that at the request of the individual, uh, the, the detained person, the receiving state must inform the consular post of the sending state of the individual's detention without delay. It provides further that any, any communication by the detained person addressed to the consular post of the sending state must be forwarded to it by authorities of the receiving state without delay. End of quotation. Significantly, this subparagraph ends with the following language, and I quote again. The said authorities shall inform the person concerned without delay of these rights under this subparagraph. Moreover, under Article 36, Paragraph 1, the sending state's right to provide consular assistance 
to the detained person may not be exercised if he expressly opposes such action in the quotation. The clarity of these provisions viewed in their context admits of no doubt. It follows, as has been held on a number of occasions, that the court must apply these as they stand. Based on the context of these provisions, the court concludes that Article 36, Paragraph 1 creates individual rights which, by virtue of Article 1 of the optional protocol, may be invoked in this court by the national state of the detained person. These rights were violations were violated in the present case. End of quotation. The increasing prominence of the individual within international law is also reflected in the development of international norm, international norm consciousness related to refugees and international internally displaced persons, an important aspect of human security as we have seen earlier. Although there is a perceived conflict between the right to international assistance for the protection of internally displaced persons and the respect for state sovereignty, the development of new norms in this field also demonstrates that the two principles are not irreconcilable. While the activity of the UNHCR in relation to the inter internally displaced persons is limited by the terms set by the General Assembly and by the UNHCR's own policy, which is based on the consent of the state concerned, the practice developed through the 1990s saw a substantial expansion of the scope of the UNHCR, accompanied by a re-evaluation of the nature of the agency's work and the incorporation of a security discourse. In 1998, the representative of the Secretary General on internally displaced persons developed the guiding principle on internally displacement, internal displacement. The guiding principle states guide, the guiding principles state that offers of assistance are not to be regarded as interference in a state's domestic affairs, and that consent to external assistance shall not be arbitrarily withheld, particularly when authorities concerned are unable or unwilling to provide the required humanitarian assistance, Principle 25. The traditional system, which has been founded on the fundamental notion of an international community consisting of nation states as the most basic elements of the system, built on the basis of the principle of sovereign equality, is thus undergoing a dramatic evolution with the recognition of the individual increasingly predominant at the heart of the international legal order. In analyzing the impact of a human security approach upon international law, Gerd Overreitner concludes, and I quote, 
human security seems to be a natural step in further moving international law beyond being concerned with national security towards including the fate of individuals as the ultimate beneficiaries of the law. As a value-based approach to security, with a focus on the individual as the ultimate beneficiary of international law, human security will continue to contribute to normative changes in the international legal order." End of quotation. Now, then, what are the challenges created by this paradigm shift in security and the parallel paradigm shift in international law? Although the international legal order is clearly evolving to take social changes in the international community into account, the dichotomy between the notion of the international continuity, international community as a global society with human beings as its basic components, and the notion of the international community as a society of sovereign states still reveals the existence of a basic tension between the two approaches. The evolution of human security by the international community can be divergent, depending upon whether one looks at a given situation from the viewpoint of the sovereign state or from that of the individuals involved. This basic tension is reflected in the definition of human security in General Assembly Resolution 66-290, which states that, and I quote, human security must be implemented with full respect for the purposes and principles enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations, including full respect for the sovereignty of states, territorial integrity, and non-interference in matters that are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of states. A typical dilemma that symbolizes this dichotomy can be illustrated by an example related to humanitarian intervention. Though on many occasions in the past, states had intervened militarily in the territory of other states to prevent atrocities in the name of humanitarian intervention, it took many years and much loss of human life for the sanctity of sovereignty to be called into question. The invasion of Cambodia by Vietnam in 1978 though it succeeded in bringing an end to the devastating regime of the Khmer Rouge, was widely condemned by the international community. Concerned with the preservation of territorial sovereignty, a majority of states insisted that the only permissible intervention was that authorized by the Security Council in response to a threat to international peace and security in conformity with the provisions of the Charter of the United Nations. Article 1, Paragraph 1 of the United Nations Charter identifies one of the primary purposes of the United Nations as being in the maintenance of international peace and security, and to that end, 
to take effective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace and for the suppression of aggression or other breaches of the peace. The collective security system to achieve this task is incorporated in Chapter 7 of the Charter. As is well known, however, this collective security system was built on the premise that the unity in purpose, based on the common interest, especially among the great powers that had been allied in cooperation during the Second World War, would serve as a linchpin of this collective security system by ensuring the materialization of unity in action. The subsequent record of performance in the Security Council, however, makes us query whether this original scheme of effective collective security described in the Charter was sufficiently realistic in assuming that unity in purpose based on the common interest can exist. During the period of Cold War confrontation, this obviously turned out to be an unrealistic assumption that did not work. With the arrival of a new era of the post-Cold War period, there was a high hope that the dream of 1945 could at last come true. However, in the new setting where a new international order based on the recognition of common interest of the global community should prevail, a single superpower dominates the military stage while a number of other powers are seeking their respective parochial interests. This seems to have disrupted the proper functioning of the system. Faced with the inability of the Security Council to respond to unfolding horrors in Rwanda and the Balkans in the 1990s, regardless of whether or not such inertia was caused by the unwillingness of member states to act or by intrinsic institutional fault, growing calls were made for right to intervention in humanitarian disasters. The inaction of the Security Council in the face of certain crises was a subject of immense discussion in the 2003 report of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty on the Responsibility to Protect. The report stated that, and I quote, in key aspects, however, the mandate and the capacity of international institutions have not kept pace with international needs or modern expectations, end of quote, and that the issue of international intervention for humanitarian protection purposes is a clear and compelling example of concerted action urgently being needed to bring international norms and institutions in, <coughs> in line with international needs and expectations. End of quotation. As discussed previously, the idea of sovereign sovereign responsibility. Uh, excuse me. As discussed previously, the idea of sovereignty containing a responsibility to protect 
was proposed as a solution to this dichotomy between sovereignty and the protection of the individual. However, the conception of responsibility to protect contained in the report of the high-level panel on threats, challenges, and changes, and endorsed by the General Assembly in the 2005 uh, uh, outcome, uh, endorsed endorsed by the General Assembly in the 2005 outcome document, confines the consideration of collective military action on the basis of the doctrine of the responsibility to protect only to existing legal structures. The report refers in specific terms to the possibility of humanitarian intervention by the Security Council, stating, and I quote, we endorse, we endorse the emerging norm that there is a collective international responsibility to protect exercisable by the Security Council, authorizing military intervention as a last resort, end of quotation. However, it does not go further by refraining from addressing what should take place in a situation where the Security Council fails to take action, either positively or negatively. One possible solution to bridging the structural gap between the political and legal orders is therefore structural reform of the Security Council to add legitimacy and effectiveness to its actions. When one examines closely the performance of the Security Council at the crucial moments of post-Cold War history, where major issues of peace and security were involved, including cases of human security crises, such as that of Rwanda in 1994, one finds that there was almost always intolerable dilatoriness and or inexcusable inaction. Again, more recently, attempts to address the human security crisis in Darfur have been met with protracted and inex inexplicable reluctance in the Security Council. These phenomena can be attributed jointly to some non-permanent members as well as to permanent members with veto power. In the face of this stark reality, it is my personal but firmly held view that the entire membership of the Security Council, whether permanent or non-permanent, should primarily consist of such members as can demonstrate the capacity and the will to contribute to the task of implementing the international public order, subject to the requirement of satisfying the consideration of the equitable geographical distribution that is essential from the angle of legitimacy. More broadly, the gaps in the international legal order revealed by a human security analysis might be addressed by the expansion of the regulatory framework to include the domestic domain. A new framework of international public order could bridge 
the perceived gap between the conception of security as seen from the state in an interstate setting and the conception of security as seen from the viewpoint of people as a group of individual citizens in a global setting. The key to achieving equilibrium between these two views is the realization of a system of good governance in our respective national societies. This would enable the creation of what I call the system of Pax Consortis, that is to say, a common framework of public order in which the major players of the system try to identify the common conception of justice in a given situation as a nucleus of international public order in a given situation and try to work together for its realization. In this regard, it is essential to improve the framework for cooperation, not only between states, but also involving other actors who have a significant impact on human security outcomes. <coughs> Now I wish to state in conclusion that the concept of human security represents a promising new approach to the issue of security relating to the public order of the international community and also reflects a parallel development in the doctrine of international law focusing on the human-centered approach to the law. Human security is an outcome of the developing understanding in the field of international relations that the notion of security is not to be confined to the, to the defense of the state for the citizens thereof against external threats related to the threat or use of force. The understanding of security has undergone a paradigm shift in recent times not only due to the widening scope of a wide variety of the sources of threats, but more importantly, due to the greater focus being placed on the individuals or group of individuals, either within or outside the state. This latter aspect of the paradigm shift is a critical element in creating the organic link between the rapidly developing fields of humanitarian law and human rights law and the concept of human security. The concept of human security thus can be said to exemplify this paradigm shift in international law. It is true that the concept of human security as a legal concept which can claim its legitimate place within the legal order of the international community remains at this point in time an inchoate concept and cannot be said to constitute part of positive international law. The precise legal framework and legal rules pertaining to human security as a legal institution have yet to be elaborated and developed. Nevertheless, I hope I have demonstrated that human security is already a legitimate concept in the reality of contemporary international relations and constitutes a useful link with international legal rules 
explaining related fields of humanitarian law, international human rights law, and refugee law, and the law of development relating to such results as good governance and protection against famine, disease, and natural disasters. In the traditional doctrine of international law, these issues have developed and been studied as belonging to separate fields. Human security may enable us to view and examine these separate fields as related parts of a common problem or goal. This is particularly important in today's world where political crises that emerge whether in the Balkans, Darfur, or the Middle East, have almost always presented as a composite whole, covering the most, if not all, of these fields. Some further intellectual inquiry may naturally be required to enable fully the realization of human security. A further expansion of the regulatory framework of this issue would seem to be warranted, as would further intellectual review and study.